You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to dote upon. Hello, and welcome to episode 127 of the Christian Feminist Podcast. I am Jessica Harden, and with me today are Liz White and Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Hi, Liz and Victoria. Hey. Hey, All right. Well, let's introduce ourselves for any listeners who are new to the program. Hi, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. I'm one of the co-founders of the CFP. I have a PhD in literature and gender studies from Florida State University, and I currently live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist podcast, and our cat, Dorothy Parker. Uh, And for my day job, I work in community engagement for an Atlanta-area startup that supports women entrepreneurs. My name is Liz Esley White, and I'm an investigative reporter at the Center for Public Integrity. It's a nonprofit newsroom. Um, it's 30 years old um, in Washington, D.C. I like to call it the older and poorer ProPublica, if you're familiar with that. Um, I'm also a Christian, and I live in D.C. with my husband and two children. Thank you, Liz and Victoria. So as I mentioned, I'm Jessica Harden. I live in South Carolina with my husband and our two boys. Currently, I'm a part-time art teacher at a local school, and previously I did open source intelligence work tracking infectious diseases um, and a variety of other things. So um, with that, with those introductions underway, I'd like to go ahead and dive right in. So before we get into our readings today, let's start off by each providing a little bit of our background Um, and our own experiences with handling news information, observations about the the industry, or even just experience with how Christians should interact with uh, the news. So so as I mentioned, I previously did open source um, intelligence, which just means any non-classified information that you can legally obtain. So that's gonna be lots and lots of media. Um, Creating useful analysis, required understanding a region, a country, its government, culture, degree of censorship, and then thinking very carefully about the source, its perspective, reliability, et cetera. So over time, I found myself needing to use those skills just to understand our domestic news. Um, And at the same time, my husband became the spokesperson for an organization that was fairly controversial within the media, and he often spoke to reporters. So sometimes I would get to listen in, and then I'd be pretty surprised at what would end up getting published. So quotes would be lifted out of context and then plopped into what seemed to have been a preformed narrative. Or an outlet would publish an article saying that his organization had, quote, declined to comment, but they wouldn't disclose that they had reached out only an hour before publishing. So I started to see instances where a rather dull string of events could be interpreted uncharitably, served up one-sidedly, and then spun into a compelling, though not factually grounded, tale. The resulting stories of these 
these uh, rather dull string of events seem to like emotionally resonate with the readers. And they also really fit into a larger narrative that felt really compelling, almost like a good movie plot. So to the analyst in me, it looked a lot like groupthink and confirmation bias. But I couldn't figure out, like, why was it so hard to present someone with the other side? Like, why is it so hard to get them or, I mean, even myself to just genuinely engage with an opposing view? Um, around that time, I started reading uh, social psychologist Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind. And in the first three chapters, he lays out some really fascinating research that suggests that we are intuitive or emotional first and rational second. And more importantly, that we use incoming information to kind of reinforce our connections to our so-called tribes. And then later, now this is like milliseconds later, not like later, later, um, we would reason why that must be correct. So when we're fighting against this type of groupthink or confirmation bias, we're not just disputing facts, we're, we're almost asking an individual to untether from their group and reconsider their perspective. So with all that in mind, um, the po this podcast really came about because I started thinking about how do we as Christians read the news objectively and resist sensationalism and, and remain clear-headed? Um, and how should we as Christians engage with the, the whole host and variety of quote, quote, news and news media that are out there. So um, with that, I will turn it over to Liz to get your background and thoughts. Yeah, um, so I am a member of the mainstream media. <laughs> and these days that sounds um, to some from people I grew up with or people I go to church with, that sounds like I'm an evil boogeyman. Um, I promise I'm not. And um, my background is I attended Hillsdale College, um, which is a, known as a conservative school. Um, and I became interested in journalism there. I was going to be a doctor. Um, kind of glad that didn't work out. And uh, became the editor-in-chief of the college newspaper. And Hillsdale has a small but um, good little journalism program but its main focus is turning out opinion writers and um, staff for conservative news outlets, I would say, are most of the graduates who end up to go be journalists. Um, so not as many mainstream um, news reporters, but that's what I wanted to do. That's what I felt led to. Um, I got a job at the Washington Examiner in Washington, D.C. out of college back when it had a little local news section. It no longer has that. And I covered um, the Metro, um, which is just the commuter train. Um, and um, in the process of that, um, uncovered um, a board member at the local airports board who'd been given this kind of sweetheart deal. She left and she wasn't really doing any, doing any work, but they were paying her a lot of money. Um, and, and the whole um, extension of the Metro out to the airport had been kind of... Um, poorly managed and had a lot of hiccups. And so I wrote about that in an investigative way. And that really hooked me to investigative journalism. Um, I got laid off by the examiner when they transitioned to being a political magazine. Um, so at age 23, I'd already been laid off. Very exciting. Um, and went to a small quarterly magazine, um, called philanthropy and wrote about donors and, um, people, um, trying to use their wealth for good. Um, and then I 
went, uh, took a fellowship at the Center for Public Integrity to learn more about investigative journalism. And I've done that. I've been there ever since. I've learned a lot. Um, and now I, I, um, I'm really happy and, um, I guess, proud of the work that we're able to do. Um, several of my projects, I've, you know, been given the freedom to work months and months on stories. And um, I feel like they've had really good impact in terms of um, governors reorganizing boards or um, trying to improve the ethics of certain things. Um, I, I could, I don't want to go in and on just the things that I've covered, but um, yeah, it's been a really great experience to be there. And I've learned a lot from my colleagues um, and we've been recognized uh, abundantly um, by journalism awards. I mean, journalists love to give each other awards like every other industry, but um you know, we're well regarded, I guess, in, in the mainstream media is what I'm trying to tell people who may not have heard of us. Um, and I really love my work. And, uh, but I, I feel like most people I interact with, um, on a personal basis, don't appreciate journalism or, um, think that it's, uh, full of, um, people who are out to get them. And so that's what I, that's where I'm coming from. Thank you, Liz. That's awesome. It makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. So, uh, Victoria, do you want to go ahead and jump in? Sure. Uh, the reason I'm excited to be on this episode is I had a postdoctoral fellowship uh, in public radio. I worked in audience engagement at Public Radio International, uh, PRI, which is now part of PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. Worked there for three and a half years, and I worked on two particular projects while I was there that made me really interested in recording this episode. The first project was that I was our organization's listener services representative for about two and a half of the three and a half years I was there. What this means is I was the person, in most cases the one single person, who individually responded to all listener emails and voicemails about the news content that we ran. Um, and this is in digital on the website and also in audio uh, broadcast and podcast. And when you spend two to two and a half hours every day answering those messages, you realize very quickly that a handful of people can read one article written by one journalist and take away completely different points or perspectives depending on uh, their own perspective, where they themselves are coming from. I answered quite a lot of bias complaints, both uh, liberal bias and conservative bias complaints. And a number of those came down to interpreting a piece of journalistic evidence differently than the journalist him or herself, just because of a social difference in perspective, a difference in class or gender or religion or geography um, or some other classification that shifts perspective. So I spent a lot of time trying to explain to people um, in the most professional, kindest way I knew how, that an inability to represent every possible perspective in one individual story didn't mean that the story was false or fake or wrong. It just meant you can't be all things to all people in one story. Uh, and the other project that I worked on while I was there is uh, an inclusion audit of our bylines and sources over an 18-month period. We were trying to determine uh, by gender and by race whether the journalists producing the stories and the sources that uh, got talked to in the stories were representative of the general population of the country 
or not? Are we creating narratives that uh, represent the makeup of the state or the country? And we learned some really interesting things from that project. A couple of things we learned uh, is that male reporters are more likely to be assigned uh, so-called hard news stories, stories about things like politics and the economy, and female reporters are more likely to be assigned stories about things like culture and art, uh, celebrity stories, less uh, hard or credible news. And also, when you look at subject matter experts in terms of source analysis, uh, white men are more likely to be picked as uh, subject matter experts, especially when journalists are talking to university professors or other journalists. And people of color are more likely to be picked as sources for less specialized man-on-the-street kind of commentary. So these things and these patterns are going to shape reported perspectives, which in turn, of course, shape cultural norms and the cycle kind of perpetuates itself over and over. And over. Uh, so those two projects really uh, have shaped some of the opinions I have about uh, how the sausage is made news-wise, and that's why I wanted to come on this episode. That's awesome, Victoria. Thank you so much. I mean, I feel really fortunate to have both of you on today because I just feel like you're bringing such a wealth of experience to this conversation, um, and I can't wait to get your perspectives on the rest of the things that we're going to talk about. Um, so really quickly, before we dive into our readings, I'm going to go run through just some real quick changes on how the industry has transformed over the past eh, decade-ish. Um, so I'll run through mine. And if you guys have anything to add afterwards, I'll open it up to you and you can, you can kind of dive in. Um, so a while back, I had a, a project that was just to basically research how has media changed over time, um, particularly after 2008. So my perspective is that the way that we create, fund, and receive news has really changed greatly within the past decade or so. So the market crash of 2008 really accelerated the, that decline of print media as more people canceled their newspaper subscriptions. So news shifted into the digital realm, but the revenues just weren't the same. So analysts at the time called it trading legacy dollars for digital dimes. Um, since then, local newsrooms have cut staff or shuttered entirely. I mean, I think, Liz, you were mentioning this with the Washington Examiner um, converting and no longer having local coverage. I'm not sure if they did that for financial reasons or just coverage reasons, but investigative journalism has also shifted more toward larger papers and news nonprofits like Liz's or, or other news nonprofits that might have a more specific interest like criminal justice reform in the case of the Marshall Project. Um, you're also going to see, I think we've also seen more digital news outlets popping up, and these are often tailored in scope or have a specific viewpoint. Um, and I think they vary greatly in terms of their, uh, their newsworthiness and credibility within the news media industry. And then you have websites like Medium, where the, you can publish and post just about anything. It's almost like a giant glorified blog, but then you're a published writer and it's, it's out there. Um, so news distribution has also shifted. So news can now reach us through social media or aggregators that use algorithms to tailor content to our specific interests or ideologies. I mean, essentially, we can each have our own news bubble. Um, and there's enough news channels and outlets out there that you can very easily construct um, a, a lovely world of news where you're only seeing things that 
really fit within your own perspective. Um, so all on its own, none of this is necessarily bad, though I would argue that it is actually bad to live in your own news bubble for reasons that I think we'll get into later on. Um, but I think you need to be aware of it. And then final note, I think while we can certainly imagine ways that we could improve our news media, I don't think there's a perfect time in the history of news that we need to hearken back to. I mean, there have always been challenges. There was certainly lots of bias in newspapers of yore. Um, I think the key, just speaking as an analyst, the key is just to know your sources and understand them and how to manage them and digest them wisely. So that's kind of my quick background on how the media has changed. Liz and Victoria, do you guys have anything to add on that? Um, I will just add that part of the shift that you're talking about also moved media jobs post-2008 to the coasts. Um, yes. So there are fewer and fewer jobs in the center of the country. And a lot of the new jobs that we see are in areas that are considered blue counties. Um, and a lot of people think that's why the media so badly missed um, the rise of Donald Trump in 2016. That is such a good point. Um, and can I follow up with a question on that? Do you think, you know, when you say those jobs moved, I'm assuming that you don't mean the people from middle America moved physically. I think you're talking about, you know, the jobs simply disappeared in one area and then were hired from a separate pool and population. Do you think that that further um, changed the ideological portrait spectrum within the news media? That's what some of the studies seem to indicate, yes. Okay. Anything else to add, Victoria? Um, I would, I know you talked about kind of an explosion of sources. Um, I would add to that the, uh, the idea of the CNN news crawl and the 24-hour news cycle, I think, is important to, um, to mention as well, because we're, we're populating something much larger in terms of uh, attention span. Like, there's got to be this churn um, all the time of information that, you know, we have physically represented by the idea of the news crawl. Um, it's not enough just to watch your news on television. There has to be uh, a news screen within your news screen or you're not getting enough information. And that can be very overwhelming um, just in terms of perspective and, and feeling like you're always going to miss out on something, which makes you, of course, uh, seek those sources even more that are kind of giving you the the dopamine uh, dopamine hit of more and faster information. That's a really good point. Um, and that actually makes me think of something else, which is you're talking about how that 24-hour on-demand news feed uh, impacts the reader. I'm also thinking about how the Twitter sphere impacts the journalism field itself. So I've spoken with um, journalists who are not doing the type of like long form journalism that Liz is doing, where she's got time to kind of watch something unfold, but are trying to cover things day to day. And they talk about how they kind of, they kind of bemoan the loss of time where they would get to follow up with their sources and really like go um, do some shoe leather, shoe leather journalism and go um, check things out before having to go hit their publication time. Now, because of Twitter, they're trying to get things out as quickly as possible. Um, and I also think Twitter can create 
a an echo chamber where it's kind of like enhancing, like you can specifically have an ideological echo chamber within that. So that may even be increasing some of that um, that ideological isolation within the journalists, while also creating this really intense atmosphere to um, get the news out as soon as is possible. And having come from the analyst world where you are really trying to get top top of the line important information into the hands of people who can use it as soon as possible very different and don't think type of thought um, journalism that you would if you had uh, a news deadline and um oh here i'm gonna go i'm gonna harken back to days of yore when you would have a newspaper that would go to print at a certain time and you had until then to make it like that just doesn't exist anymore so i think we're seeing the industry grapple with how to create good news through that with that challenge as well so um if anyone else has anything else to add on they are welcome to jump in otherwise i will turn it over to liz to run through some tips for how we can be thoughtful and um conscious news consumers yeah, I think we'll um, add some links to the podcast to help people dive in deeper on this because news literacy, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about that. Um, and I will get to some of this too in, in our discussion. Um, but just my quick and dirty tips for reading things, and I'm not sure who, who, what the source is or you know whether this is a good source of information, um, First of all, figure out if it's news, opinion, or analysis. Um, is it? Does it say opinion on it? Does it say commentary on it? Does it say news analysis on it? News analysis is kind of a blend of opinion and um, news a little bit. It's it's more of just say here's what to make of all this news. Um, so it's not technically opinion, um, but just look. Does it say op-ed? You know, at the top of the um, article that can be really helpful. This is really hard to do when you're watching TV, honestly, to tell the difference between a TV reporter and a pundit sometimes is difficult. Um, but if they're, if they're called commentator or, um, reporter, that kind of gives you a clue as to whether they're trying to offer a news or opinion. Um, I always, if it's an unknown website, I just usually look at the about page really quickly. And sometimes I even Wikipedia the source, um, just to know, okay, is this a newspaper that's existed since 1890 or is this something some guy created a week ago? Um, that just helps me evaluate information. And then, um, you can't always do this with breaking news or, you know, some of the really, um, exclusive investigative features that, um, really good news outlets will have, but look for others that are reporting the same information. So if, um, you know, you're hearing, you know, so-and-so said this and it sounds really awful and horrible, um, go see if other uh, outlets are reporting the same thing. And if they are, then um, that's even more credibility. So those are just some quick and dirty tips. But if you're interested in learning more about how to be a wise, discerning consumer of news, there's some great YouTube videos that um, we provided the links for. Thanks, Liz. That's really helpful. So I like that you ended with wise and discerning because I feel like as Christians, we can't just use the thoughtful, wise, discerning, how do you think about the news? We also are instructed that we should probably have some biblical principles that guide our thinking on this. Um, so 
The first one that I think of is that we are called to be in the world, but not of it. Or I found one article um, where the author, author was talking about we should amend that to really say that we have been purposefully put into the world. And he was citing John 17, 18, you know, as you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. So with that idea being, I think oftentimes we can have this like thought of disdain with, oh, we should be in the world, but not of it. And we just have to suffer through it. But he's really saying like, no, you've been sent into the world to be into the world and to be salt and light in the world. And so I think the reason that um, the news can really kind of um, be a valuable part of a Christian's life is because in order to be salt and light and a part of the world, I think you have to understand the culture and understand and partake of it to some extent. That doesn't mean that you're you're drowning in it. I think you still have to be solidly anchored to the to the banks of truth, but you can wade out into the torrent of culture and be able to understand it. Um, next up, I think news can help us to care for the least of these. So Matthew 25, 44 through 45. Um, when do we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger and not help you? And he, he will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did not do uh, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. I mean, I think when you think about news and local news, national and international. I mean, I think you often, that's where you hear about people who are hurting and injustices that are underway that um, that we as individuals can actually undertake action to change. So I think that's a way that news can play a critical role in informing us of important things. Um, and next, there's a great proverb, 1817, that says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes along and examines him. I think that's really important for challenging our own views, but I think it also highlights the importance of the type of journalism that Liz and others are out there doing. Um, I think you need to have someone who's out there examining things, examining people and asking them tough questions. And that it seems like there actually is a, a wise, um, a biblical and say it's mandate, but there's there's um, there's clearly guidance here that that is a good thing that is a blessing to our, and a good blessing to our society. So those are some quick governing principles I've seen. Ladies, do you have anything to add? I would just add that um, it, it you know part of our calling as Christians in a democracy. Um, we are all given kind of a piece of stewardship and, and our governance. And in order to do that well, um, we need to have good information. And so we have somewhat of a responsibility to be aware of what's going on around us. I, I would agree with that. I do think um, that responsibility of awareness uh, is, is a moral one to um, not only research candidates when it's time to vote, but to uh, familiarize yourself with local uh, voting measures, know what's happening at your city council meetings, um, because all these things do uh, connect to the least of these and, and how people with less of a voice in your community are being treated. Thank you, that's really, really helpful information. One other um, thought that I just had was, um, I, I think there's also, um, you know, as we are realizing that as news can be, we can also act as news distributors um, through our social media feeds and other things. I do think that there is an onus and responsibility, especially on us as Christians, to be wise consumers of our news and to be double checking and ensuring that what we're sharing um, meets those standards that Liz was talking about um, and that actually really 
actually is portraying something that's truthful. So uh, if there's nothing else to add, I'm going to kick it over to Victoria for her to go through our first piece or collection of pieces. Sure. Uh, we read a series of, it's actually a series of four articles, but we read three of them by Jill Carter for the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. And if uh, listeners, if you're not familiar with the ERLC, they are the public policy arm of the Sub Southern Baptist Convention. Um, I'm not going to cover these articles exhaustively, though we will link to them in the show notes, uh, but I'm just going to mention a few things that stood out to me from this series, which is all about how Christians should deal with news. Uh, in the first of these three articles, Carter lays out some really broad suggestions that we should consider when we interact with the news. One thing I liked that he said is that we are all products just like the news we consume is a product, we are all products. And he means that in two ways. First, he means we're shaped by the news we consume, um, which is uh, an obvious thing that I think we still don't think about enough, obvious though it may be. But he also means we're products in a second way, literal products in terms of our data and our attention being monetized and sold for advertising dollars. Uh, I feel like I don't hear this a lot in religious circles, so I was pleased that he was direct about that. Uh, I also appreciated his acknowledgement that the news we see and hear tells us what issues are important and, uh, and that the things that it leaves out uh, are, are less important and less top of mind. That really resonated with me. I mentioned I, I've done some work with diversity and representation in news, uh, and I think a lot of people don't spend a lot of time thinking about what perspectives are represented and what perspectives are left out. Uh, and And that is the part of my commentary where my positive interaction with Carter's pieces is kind of going to end. I'm going to be a little more critical uh, of the next couple of pieces. I was pretty unimpressed with the second piece, which deals explicitly with the idea of fake news, um, chiefly because I think Carter's definition of fake news leaves quite a lot to be desired. Uh, I'm going to quote just a bit here. He describes fake news as, quote, information about current events that is distributed as news but has no concern for the truth. Its purpose is only to motivate a particular form of acceptable thought. Uh, so after I read that definition, I kind of went straight to my teacher brain and said, uh, I'm going to need you to define terms even further. What does acceptable thought mean? Uh, acceptable to whom and on what basis? I actually think Carter would be much better served by a deep discussion of confirmation bias here. Uh, so that that's one thing. I think he's talking about fake news, but really meaning something else. And secondly, he does not even talk about all the ways technology is exploited in terms of the fake news industry. He's not talking about deep fakes. He's not talking about content farms. Um, he's not talking about all the ways data is stolen and used. Um, and he's not talking about how these content farms across online platforms like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook are also in lots of legal hot water for exploiting people that work from them. Uh, so I, I think his definition of fake news is dangerously narrow. 
while it is quite wise to caution people from accepting something as true just because it tells them what they want to hear, um, I, I don't think that is all that fake news is. Uh, and in the third piece, he talks about how Christians should engage with the news. He recommends that Christians should consume less news in general, and he calls uh, pundit-centered news on both sides of the aisle reality shows. He recommends local news over national news, and ends the article by saying Christians should prioritize, quote, the eternal perspective. Some good stuff here. Uh, I like that he places equal blame on liberal and conservative pundits. I think that's smart. Uh, on both sides, these are cults of personality more than they are news, because they consider viewpoint and audience before they consider coverage priority. Um, I'm a Catholic. I am committed to the church's social teachings like the idea of subsidiarity, the idea that we should operate close to the ground first. We should think about our local communities uh, primarily when thinking about service, uh, start there. And so because of that, I really appreciated him saying that local news can be more actionable because it can connect you to the people most in need in your own community. Um, but I also thought there was a little bit of naivete um, in his, uh, his directive to limit your news as a Christian. I do think the 24-hour news cycle can be overwhelming and can sometimes be detrimental to things like anxiety and mental health. But uh, as both Jessica and Liz mentioned previously, we are called to be in the world and not of it, uh, which does necessitate being in the world at all. That means we need to be plugged into enough knowledge to be able to employ discernment. Uh, so I, I do think the, the final piece of advice in the final piece uh, that you focus primarily on the eternal perspective was uh, a bit of a cop-out. And now I'm going to stop talking and, and let the two of you weigh in. I also agree that he ended with a bit of a cop out because um, because I, I felt like he actually like I, poor poor Carter I'm gonna I'm gonna ding him a little bit here too I felt like he switched in a couple of pieces where he basically was like well you're spending too much time looking at the news and not enough time with wisdom acquiring activities or reading your Bible and I think that that's just that's a false choice like that's those are two separate things I think that you can wisely um, study your Bible and understand um, you know have your your foundation of faith be firm. I think that you can do that thoughtfully and you can also still have deep dives into news media. I would even argue that you can you can intake some pundits. I don't actually think it's bad to take in um, punditry. I think that you need to have it within the proper perspective. I I think that you need to be aware. I love that you brought up Victoria the concept of anxiety and mental health because I think that you should, if you are a Christian and you are listening to news and it's it's poking you into fear, um, or it's it's triggering you to to really have great anxiety. That's a great time to take a step back and note that this is happening, that you're having an emotional reaction to this article. Just noting it, I think, is a helpful place to start. And then you know, going back and reassessing and understanding. Okay, well, am I, you know, am I still kind of anchored to the truth? Am I am I resting in the sovereignty of God? while also accepting that, yep, there's a pandemic underway. 
Yes. Okay. <laughs> I am. Now let me go forward from here. Um, but going back to the pundits, I mean, I think they can be a part of your news diet so long as they are a thoughtful part. Like I will occasionally, and, and I would say I avoid the more bombastic ones, but I deliberately seek out um, those voices that I I don't agree with, but you know what? I respect them. And I've got several podcasts that I listen to um, that are just very different from my own perspectives, but they put forth their arguments in a very thoughtful, um, coherent and respectful manner. And, and so I, I just would, I disagree with the notion that, um, that consuming news is not a wisdom or cannot be a wisdom acquiring activity. I do think, as Liz pointed out before, that watching your news is, and I, and I would argue that cable news in particular, I'm not sure it's all that newsy news. I think it is more infotainment. Um, but I, yeah, I'm putting a lot out there all at the same time. So I will, I will take a break and let Liz dive in. Yeah, I, I think the weakest points in his argument were really around the fake news um, definition that he gave. And so what what we saw um, kind of just before the 2016 election was that there were actually people in the Ukraine or elsewhere who were just making up news and putting it on the internet and it would go viral and they would make a lot of money from the clicks. And that's what was first called fake news. Those um, content Jeff farms that I was mentioning, they started yeah, in the exactly. Ukraine. Um, and um, those are real things um, that still go on, that people still fall for. Um, but then we saw the term fake news kind of get uh, uh, adopted very strongly by Donald Trump, um, now President Donald Trump, as a way to describe just the media in general, or any media he doesn't really call, uh, care for. Um, and it's a way now to talk about all mainstream media, the fake news media. Um, and it, it seemed to me that Carter didn't really outline the difference between the use of those two ways of using that term. And then also it seemed like he was really um, kind of talking more in line with Donald Trump's definition, but it was hard to tell. Um, and I, I think the president's argument is that the mainstream media is biased and therefore not to be trusted. Um, whereas actual fake news, the older type that we're talking about is, is literally just made up. It's just not even like they didn't call any sources. They just typed whatever. Um, so I wish that Carter had been more specific there and had helped Christians understand that instead of just kind of lumping a lot of things together. That's a really great point. I was particularly struck by the fact that, um, that I thought of the exact same, the, the actual literal fake news that was just to get clicks and earn money. It actually would not have qualified for his definition because it didn't, it's, it's purpose was not to only motivate a particular form of acceptable thought. It's purpose was just to generate clicks and generate money. So I think this definition is dangerously narrow, um, in its, in its perspective. Um, so so uh, I will just make this really brief. I think the problems that we see in news media um, and the difficulty that we have 
sometimes in obtaining good information or kind of sorting fact from fiction when we're looking at the internet, those problems have all been exacerbated by this pandemic. There have been so many people complaining about this or accidentally even posting um, misinformation on their Facebook feeds. Um, and one of that, one of the really great examples of this was the pandemic video that went viral. Um, it was sleek, it was well-produced. There was a really great article in response to this um, by Marshall Allen, who's an investigative reporter at ProPublica um, and who is also a Christian. Um, I, he says, I, I don't know him, but um, that's part of his biography. And he says a number of, he asks a number of good questions um, for for other people to consider when they're looking at something like pandemic and trying to decide whether that is good information or it, it's, um, you know, just not something they should pay attention to. And I thought these are really good ways of helping evaluate news sources, um, no matter what the, the situation is, even if it's not a viral video about um, conspiracy type stuff. But number one, is the presentation one-sided? So are you only hearing half of the story? Are you only hearing, um, you know, quotes from Democrats? Are you only hearing um, quotes from Republicans or whatever it is? Um, are, are you getting the other side? Is that within the story? Um, number two, is there an independent pursuit of the truth? Um, you know, is there an attempt to verify what someone is saying? I, I thought the pandemic video it was very obvious that uh you know, she comes right out and says, I was never charged with anything. And he never follows up a question with, well, what do you mean? You were never charged, but you were thrown in jail. I mean, that's, that's quite the glaring accusation. Um, number three, is there a careful adherence to the facts? Uh, is there an attempt to document, um, to go back and say, you know, here are the records for her jail, <laughs> um, visit and that kind of thing. Um, number four, are those accused allowed to respond? This is, this is huge. Um, every credible journalist will move mountains in order to get um, someone who's accused of something um, on the record saying, you know, giving a comment about what, what they're accused of. If, if the journalist has not tried to do that, if the source has not tried to do that that you're reading, they're probably not a good source of information. Um, number five, are all sources named and cited? And if not, is the reason explained? Uh, you know, sometimes journalists have used anonymous sources or background sources, but if you read carefully, it'll usually say, you know, do not want to give their name out of fear of losing their job. Or, you know, there will be an explanation for why they're relying on these, these sources. Um, versus just an anonymous source said that that's not good journalism. Um, number six, does the work claim some secret knowledge? And I think this is a good question to ask of any of the um, alternative theories of things that you, you hear out there, um, conspiracy theories and that kind of thing. If there's some kind of secret knowledge that can't be independently verified and there's no evidence for, we should really be questioning that. Um, and then, so... With that, I think uh, just a really quick acronym to help remember what is a good news source is VIA. And this I get from uh, a resource online that we'll also provide the link to. But it's verification, independence, and accountability. So is the news verified? 
did they talk to multiple sources or find documents, things like that, by an independent organization. So they're not financially beholden to an outcome or they're not, you know, this is not from a certain political party or, you know, that kind of thing that is accountable for the information. So are they admitting errors? Do they print corrections? Um, are you able to call them up? Can you write them a letter to the editor? Things like that, that um, are layers of accountability for any news organization. And then I just wanted to add quickly, I think a lot of um, Christians, um, at least the ones that I've encountered in my life, like to cast aspersions on the media and think that they're, you know, not the devil incarnate, but close to it. And I will just say that reporting is really, really hard. Good investigative reporting is really, really hard um, to, to make sure that you're contacting everyone, finding um, stories that people don't want you to find out about. Um, and these people are just trying to do a really good job at that for the most part. Um, definitely they're human. They bring their own biases and errors to what they're doing. Um, but most of the time, even if you really disagree with the angle of a story, if it's from a credible news source and a credible news reporter, they're going to have good information there for you to glean. Um, and then also there are built-in systems for accountability for news organizations. So again, if something is wrong, they have to print a correction. Um, reporters who make up quotes are fired. There are layers of accountability there versus some guy who writes an article on Medium there's no layer of editing, fact-checking, anything there. Um, when I write an article or an investigation, it goes through multiple rounds of edits, uh, sometimes more than a dozen rounds of edits from three or four or five different editors, as well as a fact-check and a review by a lawyer. Um, uh, there's just multiple safeguards in place to make sure that what we're reporting is accurate. And then... Also, we're so quick to disparage the media, I feel like, sometimes in the Christian community. And we don't also point out that good journalism is essential for democracy. We need the fourth estate to uh, put a check on those in power. And that this has been clear from the beginning, from our founding. Um, Thomas Jefferson said that he'd rather have uh, newspapers with no government than government with no newspapers. So... Let's keep that in mind as we think about the media and, and we think about its shortcomings is that it's also essential and vital for us to have uh, communities where um, people can't get away with stuff. <laughs> we need the light of accountability to shine on people. Uh, Jessica and Victoria, do you have thoughts on yeah, what I said? That was great. Thank you so much for that. Um, I I love your your ending on that note of how journalists really are essential for democracy. And I think that even in that proverb that I mentioned that, yeah, someone's argument often looks great until they're, they're cross-examined. And I think that oftentimes in our society, the journalists are doing the cross-examining. And so even speaking as someone whose spouse has been, um, unfortunately kind of privy to a lot of the, a lot of not so lovely things within the media where quotes can be kind of lifted and, and dropped into preformed narratives. I will still say and affirm the need for solid media. Um, and I'd also, I'd also like to, to, um, to just reaffirm and, and go a little further and say that I think most journalists who are out there doing their job, they really are trying to do the best that they can do. And, um, 
Victoria, you mentioned before that when you were doing the study of trying to figure out, you know, is are you actually representing, is, are your reporters representing the population and who's getting assigned what sorts of things? You know, I don't think people are out there evilly trying to, I don't think evilly is a word, but they're not trying to manipulate or trying to, I think in general, people are generally trying to do a good job and support um, the society that we live in. Um, and I think it's just very good for us as Christians to remember that and to have a charitable, empathetic stance instead of just writing off the media as a monolith that we don't have to listen to. Um, as And then I wanted to highlight one piece out of Marshall Allen's um, piece that just encouraged me a lot. So it's his second to last paragraph. And he says, perhaps pandemic is guilty of sloppy storytelling, or maybe people really do believe the things they're saying in the video, or perhaps they're being intentionally dishonest, or it's biased, um, biased connecting, or it's a biased connecting of the dots rooted in personal and professional grievances. I don't know, because I can't get inside the heads, their heads to judge their motives. What a great example of humble inquiry. You know, this is a journalist who, you know, he's written out and acknowledged his unknowns and he's not trying to assume the sources um, motives. You know, he's not trying to pretend like he has some secret insight into it. And I think that that, that stance and that stature is actually really helpful. Um, and whenever I find a journalist who is, or a reporter who in their writing is willing to say, well, this side and this side, and you know, we may not know. Like I always find that I'm, I'm trusting them more because they're acknowledging the things that they don't know. Um, but I think it's, I'd like to reaffirm that it's essential um, that we do have good democracy. And as Christians, let's give the benefit of the doubt. With that being said, Liz, I would love it if, you know, could you speak a little bit to, um, and Victoria, you too, you know, have y'all, is there anything in journalism education about like, hey, don't just lift a quote and drop it into your narrative. <laughs> but I feel like that I've seen that happen so much that surely I'm not the only one. I mean, I recognize that I'm just married to one man and he worked for one organization and it was a unique situation because I think they were uniquely disliked organization, but still, um, surely that happens. What are some safeguards against that? Or what are things that you've seen? Have you seen that happen? Um, tell me your thoughts about it. Um, I can just quickly say, yeah, I, I think that um, sometimes reporters are rushing and they are, uh, you know, just trying to really quickly, um, you know, report out, okay, this happened, you know, let's get five quotes from people and put it in there. And um, there's, so there's that aspect of it. And then there's also, you're, you're, you're worried about a preformed narrative. I think, yeah, I think the best reporting will carefully weigh different perspectives and admit uncertainty and different things. Um, but also, I think that there is room for um, you know, storytelling. I think that, you know, you, you had kind of a problem with the way that a, a news article would res resemble a movie script. And certainly if it does that untruthfully or in a way that is like inaccurate or isn't fair to the actual circumstances, that's a problem. But in general, I think people getting readers engaged with what actually happened in a way that's well written and is well told is a good thing. Um, and I think storytelling is really important. And if someone can do that in a narrative and good way, um, you know, in a way that's fair and and um, impartial and and those kinds of things, 
Um, I think that's a real asset to people understanding what actually happened. Um, if that helps or not, but definitely like quote lifting, quote hunting is definitely a thing and good journalists try to avoid it. Thank you. That's helpful. I wanted to touch on one thing um, that you said, cause I feel really torn about it. And that was storytelling because I agree like the, someone who can tell a story has such a gift. Um, but the challenge is if you have institutions that have individuals who all tend to kind of think in the same perspective, you know, I think then you can run into something where you can get this larger narrative running and not have someone asking or pushing back, um, asking the right questions, and they can tell themselves stories and get into groupthink. So I feel really torn because I, I think good storytelling is essential. And that's how we, yeah, that's how we latch onto things. I think we we understand them better when we hear them in story mode. But I worry that, especially as you see, um, like when we we're talking about with the the, the jobs moving to the coasts, the more that you see our papers and our, well, not papers, but our news no longer representing all of America, I think that when your storytellers begin to not resemble those who are listening to the story, I feel like that schism feels even more salient. What do you think, Victoria? Uh, I agree with what you're both saying about the incredible necessity of finding humanity on all sides. I know that I, um, one of the things that really kind of gets my hackles up is when people criticize the media as if that is even a thing that exists. I, that, that kind of monolithic um, discussion erases um, people that I worked alongside and that I have great love for, um, that I saw really work hard for hours and hours and that I saw, you know, uh, try to repair satellite links so that, uh, someone in a war torn country could, uh, have their voice heard and say, you know, here's what's happening to me and my family. Um, I, I worked alongside so many men and women who in the face of death threats and uh, and horrible um, phone calls and emails were just trying to do their job the best that they possibly could. And so, you know, to hear someone who is removed from that industry just say, oh no, the media is dishonest and that's the end of it, um, saddens me so much because I, I have so much respect for um, these people who really are working very hard to do things um, that that are in line with my Christian values, even if they themselves are not believers. They want um, the least of these to be heard. They want multiple perspectives to be represented. They want those in power to be held accountable to how they're using their power. Uh, so that's, that's my... Uh, my contribution to this part of the discussion. Remember that everybody is a person. I love that, Victoria, and I really appreciate um, your summing it up so well. Um, Liz, I actually, when you were talking and you were speaking about how um, the journalist might just be trying really hard to meet a deadline and have those five quotes put in there, and I thought, oh, I'm doing it. I'm being the uncharitable person that's like, well, why didn't you? <laughs> Instead of recognizing like, Okay, yes, they are all people. Um, and I think that we can later have a broader discussion about 
you know, how, how do you introduce more diversity into, or how do you encourage um, the storytelling that is more representative? Um, and what does that look like? Um, but I think for today and for where Christians are, we have to work with the media we have right now. And I think it's, it's a great takeaway for all of us to recognize that the individuals who are working in this field are generally trying to do a really good job and do something that's difficult and hard. Um, and that as Christians, you know, if we believe that the world is imperfect and fallen, um, then I think it, we should have a measure of grace and understanding. Um, so with that, is that, does anybody else have anything else to add? No, I think that's great. All right, so that concludes the reading portion of our podcast today. And now we'd like to take a moment and just pass along some sources and texts that you can review later. So for mine, I would like to encourage listeners to check out John Haidt's work on The Righteous Mind or any of his other work on exploring how the intuitive and rational reasoning seems to work together. Um, okay, so any tips that you'd like to offer your fellow believers on how to read the news? Liz, do you want to start? Yeah, number one, subscribe to your local newspaper. These institutions are dying. They need your support. Number two, be that guy who writes the letters to the editor constantly or calls into the local NPR station and tells them what you think was wrong with their story. They love reader feedback. You should give it. Um, and then also just don't watch cable news. It's generally just not as good. Uh, yes, I would agree with what Liz said about writing into your uh, NPR station or your newspaper um, and I feel like I have a right to say this because as I said I was the person reading all those letters and while it was sometimes frustrating uh, there was one lady that I heard from every single day for about six weeks um, but I, I got to know her really well and uh, I got to go to editorial meetings and say um, you know, if, if you frame this story that way, I know we're going to get a complaint from name redacted. Uh, but it, it was an, a really good insight onto the points of view of our audience. So uh, know that someone is reading that stuff and that you will uh, impact how the news is made if you write in. Uh, my recommendation is just make media literacy and interpretation part of your regular day. Have conversations with your children and your parents and people in your family about the media that you're all consuming and about how the media that you're consuming frames you as a consumer. Um, that's my general recommendation. Uh, more specifically, I'm going to recommend a YouTube series uh, by Crash Course from the uh, Vlogbrothers uh, Media Center. And it's a 12-part series led by uh, Jay Smooth, who is a rapper and, and radio host. Um, he's very intelligent. It's very well-researched. It's modeled after a standard uh, college media literacy curriculum, but I would say that it's appropriate for older children, maybe uh, 12 or so and up, as well as adults. It talks about things like how to evaluate sources, um, how editing can create bias, how technology like deep fakes and content forms can intersect with media bias. And it also talks about the history of media censorship in the United States. Uh, so I would recommend that series if you were trying to be a more media literate person. 
Awesome. Thank you, Victoria. I would recommend that people recognize and combat their own confirmation bias. Um, I would suggest reading a little bit of Jonathan Haidt's Righteous Mind or some of his other work that's exploring intuition and rational reasoning and how they seem to work together. Um, I would... I would try to understand, humanize, and even empathize with the other side. So cultivate relationships um, with those with whom you find yourself disagreeing. So in lieu of face-to-face interactions because of COVID-19 or other things, um, I'd encourage you to find relatable podcasts on the other side and interact with the hosts when you don't understand their perspective. Just don't do it in a trolling way. (laughs) Um, I'd also recommend that people not just let their news come to them passively through social media or other tailored algorithms, go to the sources themselves um, and see what they have to say. Then if a source gets you emotionally charged, I would recognize that. Just note it. It likely suggests that you're not operating as rationally as you would be. Um, And then just resist the salacious. So boring doesn't get views. I would say look for sources that give a balanced view on both sides. Um, Final note, if you would like more information about how to wade through the absolute sea of information that's out there regarding COVID and scientific studies, please go to um, the Christian Feminist Podcast episodes 90 and 92 and it, it it will give you a great outline on how christians should think about health information with a good guide on how to interpret scientific information so with that i'd like to thank you for listening to the christian feminist podcast we would love to hear from you um, if you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows or if you just want to drop us a line you can do so at christian feminist podcast at gmail.com you can also find us on our facebook page or on the network Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And uh, you can check out the show notes from this and our other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Liz White and Victoria Reynolds Farmer, I'm Jessica Hardin. Tune in next month for our first summer show of the year on the graphic novel series, The Unbeatable Squirrel Girl. Until next time, in Essentials Unity, in Non-Essentials Liberty, and in all things, love.